Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight is no exception as we continue Voices from Behind the Wall, the Voices of the Innocent. And I'll tell you right now, folks, you want to dial into the show tonight, feel free, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628, as we continue not only talking about abuse behind the wall, but what are the challenges Facing those coming out of incarceration and the, the challenges of functioning, of re-entering society with no help at all. We're going to talk about that and the mental anguish of the wrongfully convicted. Folks, this is AJC Radio. We kick off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and Samson Riddle and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we get into a discussion that definitely needs to uh, start ha- uh, happening, if you will. And we're going to get into that discussion tonight. We're going to be joined also uh, tonight by CEO and founder of Prison The Hidden, and, and The Hidden Sentence, excuse me, Julia Lazarek. She'll be joining us, and she has a lot to say in regards to reentry. And, and, and basically, it kind of falls, uh, uh, falls down to that, comes down to that rather. Uh, the so-called reentry programs that pe- the folks speak of uh, simply is not, it's not enough. It's not there. Uh, and it's definitely not there to the point that it needs to be. Uh, and when you talk about the mental anguish, the challenges, the mental torture uh, of, of these things happening, uh, it's going to take more than a book says, this is how you get back and get a job and start and get on your way and, and go for it. It's a lot deeper than that. We're also going to be joined uh, as well by Derek Gamble. He's going to be joining the show tonight. He's going to give some insight. He is the executive director with Clean Slate Reentry Program. Uh, and, and Derek actually looks and coordinates, manages, and leads the team, providing all aspects of reentry services. We're going to get into that, and we're going to definitely call out what is missing uh, in reentry. And our very special friend, Kathy Morse, she'll be joining us to get into discussion of some of the mental uh, battles she has dealt with, as well as the mental battle of uh, those that uh, are facing these challenges as well. So uh, this is good. De- definitely going to be a good show. Tell your friends and everybody you know to dial into this show, Voices from Behind the Wall, the Voices of the Innocent, and we're going to deal with that. Uh, current events as well tonight uh, going on in Washington, D.C. Everybody's talking about it. The Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, the FBI uh, investigation uh, that many are calling a quick sham job, if you will, that not not no not really a real investigation with so many witnesses that were left uninterviewed uh uh the GOP is attempting to push this confirmation through is what is being reported uh and we'll see exactly how that turns out as well seems to be very interesting uh and as we said before uh it, it, in in a case such as this uh you have to take the time uh, to do your due diligence into accusations, alleged accusations on this level. Uh, nobody, again, it, 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 as far as uh, remembering exactly what happened, but there's a lot of folks coming out, uh, whether it's Kavanaugh, former uh, roommates that are talking now, uh, who saw his behavior. And I think the question that they're raising at this point, uh, was Mr. Kavanaugh 
forthcoming uh, as far as his drinking habits, uh, being to the fact that he was uh, uh, seen as being what they call uh, really uh, sloppy drunk to the point of passing out. Uh, and if that is the case, uh, it's very difficult to remember uh, possibly uh, the actions that took place. And again, I'm just putting that out there because that's the discussion right now. Um, and I'll tell you what, it's one of those things that if that was the case, you would think Mr. Kavanaugh would have been better off simply saying, you know what? I drank a lot. I did. I was a sloppy drunk in college, in high school. Uh, there's some things I'm not proud of, things I don't even really remember. And if I've hurt someone or offended someone, uh, then I'm sorry. And, and, but I don't remember. Uh, versus vehemently denying anything when if you're engaged in alcohol, drugs, anything along those lines, uh, you are going to be in a situation where you are incoherent uh, to the point uh, of possibly passing out and not and, remembering. And the thing that, um, you know, when you listen to what's going on with, the, with these hearings, with uh, the investigation and people on both sides, you know, especially on the GOP side where they're saying, well, hey, the investigation was done. Uh, you know, there's no new evidence and they're they're hitting the president is hitting on saying that Dr. Ford is saying, well, I don't remember this. I don't remember that. Uh, but the same thing with uh, with with uh, Judge Kavanaugh is he I mean, he's just denying it as hard as everybody else is saying that, well, he's got it wrong from what from what they remember him in high school and college. He's saying, no, it never happened. You that the thing that gets me about him is he never says, "Well, this may have happened." Like alluding to what you were saying, a lot. This never—he's saying this never happened. Not well, you know. Hey, maybe I, maybe I may have had one too many drinks, and uh, there could be some lapses in memory. Um, but he is denying ever getting to the point where he was actually, you know, completely drunk, and that is the unbelievable part to me. That is the part that says, "Hey, you know, besides his temperament." Uh, when he, you know, uh, was telling Congress that, uh, you know, this is a witch hunt and revenge on the part of the Clintons and his statement saying what goes around comes around. I mean, are you saying that from the bench you're going to see to it that you're going to exact revenge on the people who didn't vote for you, who are in the opposite party? What goes around comes around. Those are the issues that, uh, you know, American citizens should really look at. Think about that, you know, is this man's temperament, is his honesty something, you know, and just the questions around his uh, around his nomination. Is that something that we want hanging over the Supreme Court for the next, you know, maybe 30, 40 years? Those are the issues that uh, that we have to deal with, the questions we have to ask. And um, and tonight, uh, you know, just in the last hour, there were one Republican um, senator says that he will not be there during the uh during the voting and susan collins says that she is still undecided so uh looks like the the gop is is having still having a hard time you know getting some pushback and if they lose two votes on that he will not be confirmed so uh yeah trying times in america but it is what it is well we did have and i don't i just saw this for leaving home tonight a former uh supreme court judge Right, Judge Stevens uh, came out and said, "Mr. Kavanaugh should not be confirmed." Let me, I'm telling you, uh, that's some heavyweight right there. Whether right. it's a current Supreme Court, which they're not going to comment on it, 
But when a former justice comes out and says this cannot, there's, it's just too much out there. And if Mr. Kavanaugh is confirmed, he's an asterisk judge for his entire And at the end of the day, November's less than five weeks away, the election. The midterm election is less than five weeks away. There's going to be a lot going on, a lot being said, a lot being talked about, uh, stand by us, and to be continued. Uh, so uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, a lot of stuff is supposed to happen in the next uh, 48 to 72 hours. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of the break, we're coming back. Voices from behind the wall, the voices of the innocent, the mental anguish, the torture of reentering society left alone. We'll be right back. This is ADC Radio. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experienced some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff? But he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at one 855 529-4252. That's one 529 4252 Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters, our wives, and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. 
We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. Thank you. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, as we talked earlier, voices from behind the wall, the voices of the innocent, the mental anguish, if you will, of those that have been wrongfully convicted, and the challenges, Dennis, of coming out of incarceration into a society that you have been taken away from. And, and that's what you've been snatched uh, and just think of it that way. Somebody comes to your home one night, snatches you and takes you, some, kidnaps you, and puts you in a cage for six years, seven years, one year, six months. No issue on the time. And then they say, well, we're done with you and throw you in the, in the middle of the street and say survive. That's, a, that's the best way I can compare it uh, of how it really is. And the mental part of that uh, is horrific. Your thoughts? First of all, you know, trying to deal with the uh, deal with the first of all dealing with the idea that uh, you, you were you were put in you were wrongfully convicted, and then after you were not only were you wrongfully convicted, you were put out on the street, and you were given no hope. I mean, to expunge to expunge your uh, your record or to or to get it clean is almost impossible. So. Not only are you dealing with the fact that you you know you were cheated out of uh, years in your life, and now you got to try to figure out how to build back your life. You got to figure out how to deal with you know the, everything that you missed, everything that you lost, because there I'm sure there were some losses there. It, it's just incredible. So something has to be done that, that we first of all we try to prevent wrongful convictions, and then second off, second of all, when you that person does get out. That there is a system that a reception system that receives them to bring them back to the community. Of course, that will never happen. But well, that's something we need to look the, at. The problem is you have nonprofit organizations who try to focus on reentry. Right. I heard that so many times during my wrongful conviction uh, in prison. Seven years. I heard that we're going to get you prepared. You have no way to prepare me when you treated me like a dog. Exactly. For seven years, you locked me in, in a solitary confinement. Without calls over a seven-year period, so don't tell me about you. You are concerned about reentry. You're exactly. concerned about what your mental break will be uh, going back into society. You can't tell me that because I lived an exact opposite of that. Right. And when you look at it, I mean, if you if you look at what happens to prisoners of war, they're taken in, they are basically captured put in prison and maybe kept there for you know however long you think about uh senator mccain and he was kept as a as a pow for what five years uh he was tortured he was uh he was uh injured all kind of ways totally mistreated but then when you compare that to the American prison system, you say, OK, these are the same type of things happening in the prison system that these people are, uh, you know, basically, especially if you're you're uh, when you're wrongfully convicted, you're pulled in, you're locked in a cage, you're you're being mistreated by the guards who feel like they're God. They want to be judged during executioner. They're mistreating you. So you're getting the same type of treatment as like basically somebody as a prisoner of war. The, the thing, the difference is a POW, when they come out, they have a support system. They get treated and, uh, you know, and, and service for having PTSD. They have someone for basically the rest of their life 
helping them along the way, getting counseling, saying this individual has been to through a traumatic situation. We need to ensure that uh, that they're taken care of, that everybody understands that they've been through this traumatic situation, and we need to help them. But when an inmate, even an inmate who's exonerated, comes out, there is no, okay, we're going to see to it that you get counseling for PTSD. Oh, no. We're going to see to it no. that somebody is there for you for the rest of your life. And this is not somebody who, um, you know, and I appreciate the, the, uh, the service of every serviceman. They volunteered to go to war. If they get caught as a POW, they knew what they were signing up for. It takes nothing away from the fact that they were done wrong, and we appreciate them laying their life on the line. But an innocent person that goes to prison, they didn't sign up for that. They got wrongfully convicted, and then when they get let out, they're just put on the street with no type of support system, nothing to help them along the way. And if you, if you compare those two things and look at it in the same way that a person that was wrongfully convicted was a prisoner of war. This is not something of their choosing or not something, a consequence of their action. It was a consequence of the failure of the system, and they should be treated as such. No, I 100% agree with that. Um, that's very true. Um, I don't think our society has digested yet what it means to be wrongfully convicted. I don't think they get it. And listen to this. After prison, the guilty get help. The innocent get nothing. This man wants to fix that. On the morning of August 29th, Daryl Burton climbed out of a bed and immediately dropped to his knees. He whispered a prayer of thanks because the, that day marked the 10-year anniversary of his being exonerated and released from a Missouri prison after serving 24 years for a crime that he didn't commit. Now, through the newly formed Miracle of Innocence Foundation, Burton hopes to aid other recent exonerees in the Midwest. And he states, when I came home, there was nothing in place for an exonerated person. Burton said his new organization would change that, providing the newly, exoner the newly exonerated with reentry resources, such as housing referrals, education, individual and family counseling, job and transportation assistance. No one understands what our needs are, Burton said. Coming home from an experience like that, we have been traumatized on so many fronts. Emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. We need someone who can help us process what has taken place in our lives. The Miracle of Innocence Foundation will be unique because it is led by exonerees and is among the first such groups in the Midwest. It is affiliated with the New Jersey-based Centurion Ministries, which is the group that helped Burton prove his innocence. Now, that's what you talk about getting stuff done and working to make a difference. And from his own experience, he understands that when he says, you have no idea what our needs are. And if the Department of Corrections, and listen to that word, Department of Corrections, is a place to correct, to rehabilitate those who may have done wrong in society. Never a place meant for those that are innocent. And for, to those that made mistakes or made bad choices, there is no help from the inside on reentry. You get a couple of pieces of paper with a staple in the corner that tells you about going home. Are you kidding me? But well, we call it we have reentry programs. It's, a, it's, it's all uh, untrue. 
It's not happening. It's not happening in prisons as it needs to be. We're going to play a clip right now. Come back. We're going to talk about it. Uh, this is serious. Let's hear it. What was remarkable is that lots of figures within the media, um, within the Duke faculty, and to a certain extent within the Duke administration, not only presumed the players to be guilty, but then drew these very broad moral judgments. It was a completely closed-minded uh, early approach to the case. My name is Casey Johnson. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. I wrote a blog on the Duke Lacrosse case called Durham and Wonderland and co-wrote a book on the case uh, with Stuart Taylor called Until Proven Innocent. During spring break, when most of the students uh, at Duke were off campus, uh, the, the captains of the lacrosse team came up with the not-so-bright idea of uh, inviting two strippers to perform uh, for uh, the players. One of them was this woman, Crystal Mangum, who we subsequently learned uh, had uh, very severe mental uh, uh, problems. Uh, she arrived. Uh, she had no particular interest in performing. It appears as if she was on some sort of combination of alcohol and prescription uh, drugs. Uh, and the party relatively quickly turned ugly. There was a shouting match uh, between the other dancer and uh, members of the team. By this point, most of the guys had already uh, left. Um, and then uh, the, the second dancer, a woman named Kim Roberts, drove off. And in a normal circumstance, no one ever would have, would have heard of this again. But as Roberts drove off, uh, she, was, uh, she found out that her fellow dancer had passed out. Uh, she called the police uh, to come and get uh, Mangum to take her uh, either home or to a, uh, a psychological institution. Um, Mangum, uh, when she was awakened by the police, she was going to be admitted to a psychological institution and was prompted improperly uh, by a nurse uh, who asked her whether she had been raped. And Mangum, who knew the system well, uh, said yes. She was sent to Duke Hospital and she made an allegation. We saw a kind of mob mentality that uh, took hold of the activist wing of the Duke faculty, which culminated uh, in an April uh, 2006 statement signed by 88 uh, Duke faculty members called the Group of 88, uh, in which before any charges even had been filed, uh, these 88 uh, faculty members took out an ad, a full-page ad, in the Duke campus newspaper. They unequivocally asserted that something had happened uh, to Crystal Mangum. Uh, she was claiming rape. The lacrosse players said nothing happened. They said that they would continue their activism regardless of what the court uh, uh, decided or what the police said. Uh, and they thanked public protesters for not waiting and making themselves heard and the highest profile public protest that had occurred at that point uh, had been a march in front of the captain's house in which uh, protesters had carried large signs uh, urging the castration 
of the lacrosse uh, captains. So this was, it, it was a complete abandonment of any pretense uh, of objectivity, of any interest in the truth. There were three elements that, that proved Mangum lied. The first, and, and by far the most important, was the DNA. Mangum's story was that she was sexually assaulted for 30 minutes by a group of people who did not use condoms. Um, in such an assault, DNA would be left behind. And she was immediately taken to the hospital. Uh, DNA samples were taken from all 46 white lacrosse players, and there were no matches to any 46. The second were the, uh, uh, were the descriptions. Um, Mangum did describe the people who attacked her. Um, those descriptions didn't resemble in any way any of the lacrosse uh, uh, players. There you have it. And in that particular case, case ladies and gentlemen, you're dealing with the, to me, the Duke lacrosse team might as well had been convicted from the time this accusation have. And then to be wrongfully accused, your life sometimes is never the same from an accusation. And this particular case proved to be a complete sham. There was no guilt of these men. And they were, you know what I mean? That their lives stopped in a moment as a result of a wrongful accusation that had no merit, that the prosecutor decided to go forward on. This is what we talked about the other night. There's no accountability for the prosecutors who simply are zealous to prosecute and to do the things that they do. Um, It's unacceptable. And we're going to listen to more of that here, uh, here in a little bit. Uh, but we want to also uh, now uh, get ready to bring our guest on, uh, who uh, is a young lady, Julia, Le- I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Lazarek, she'll correct me if I'm wrong, uh, CEO and founder of Prison, The Hidden Sentence, and president of Friends and Family of Incarcerated Persons. And as we said uh, Tuesday night, we were going to discuss the uh, issues and the anguish and the mental torture, if you will, and all of the challenges facing those leaving prison. But our focus, again, on the innocent. If the uh, challenges are great with those who were guilty to come out and try to function in society, multiply that times a million for the innocent that did time without cause or without uh, any reason of being uh, behind the wall as a result of a wrongful conviction. Uh, those are things that uh, we're going to get into discussion now. And right now joining us, Julia Lazarek. I'm hoping I pronounced right. Julia, you there? I am here. Thank you. Pretty close. It's Lazarek. But thank Lazarek. you. And thank you for having me on the show today. Yeah. Okay, Lazarek. Yeah. I'm just going to call you Julia. How about that? That, that sounds Lazarek. fine. Thank you. Thanks for joining us tonight. And uh, as I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far, uh, we're, we're focused uh, on a series, it's an indefinite series right now, uh, called Voices from Behind the Wall. We wanted to focus, focus on the voice, the abuse happening in America's prisons and jails across this nation, uh, but also the, uh, the uh, voices of the innocent 
is what we've been focused on for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and the abuse, that, that uh, as far as being wrongfully convicted as an innocent person is abuse alone all by itself. But then getting out of prison, when you've been snatched from a world that you knew, you, were not a, you didn't break the law, you were a citizen, uh, you went to work every day, uh, you had a family, you had kids, you had a routine. And the criminal justice system of this nation snatches you away from that as a kidnapping. Uh, that's how I, I see it. Uh, and lock you away in a cage for whatever amount of time they deem fit for you to, to, to be uh, in prison. And then they want to throw you, you know, one of the guys, Antoine, one of the exonerated band members came on and said they dropped him off in the middle of the highway in the rain mm-hmm. and said, go for it. You're free. And he spent, I believe it was 18 years, if I'm not mistaken, Antoine, we're going to check that with research, spent some, I mean, many years. And you put him in the middle of the road in, in the rain and say, you're on your own? How, how that's possible, I have no idea how that's even legal. Uh, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our listeners as we get into this discussion. want to hear more about the, pres- uh, the prison, the hidden sentence, and uh, also your president of friends and family of incarcerated persons. And that anguish, that mental battle, those mental challenges of having to deal with a loved one getting out, uh, again, one wrongfully convicted. What is the mental anguish on the family, on the children, all the people that are involved? So we want to get, kind of get your input and in, in, in your thoughts on this topic. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Yes, even though the United States has 20% of the world's population um, incarcerated, we only have 5% of the world's people. So if you look at that, and also there's 5 million children that have or had an incarcerated parent. So if you you look at those numbers and you think of the people on the outside that are affected, you're looking at about 10% of the population in the United States. So a lot of people think, oh, it's not me. It's not going to happen to me. However, everybody needs to be aware and everybody needs to know what's happening. For Prison the Hidden Sentence, we are a platform where we tell stories. And we help people see that they're not alone. And we've interviewed people that have been incarcerated, wrongly incarcerated. Uh, One person was incarcerated and they wanted to do a plea bargain with her. And she didn't want to do that. She was in prison 100 days. And then they dropped the charges and let her go. So just think of what that did to her life. And then there was another guy that was uh, incarcerated that I interviewed. And the same thing. And he was in there for t- 10 months waiting for his DNA um, samples to, to exonerate him. So he was in there for 10 months. So if you think of the way that people are affected, even just sitting in prison, there's over 6 million people in the prison system. So we're talking about over 2 million people that are incarcerated, but there's another 4 million people that are sitting in prisons that what you're talking about wrongly accused that are going to be set free. So it not only affects the people that are incarcerated, it also affects everybody around them, their communities, their families, their children, their spouses, their friends. And what Friends and Family of Incarcerated Persons does is we're a support group where people that have somebody in the prison system can come to the group and talk about it with other people, the same as our social media platform, so that they can get the information they need. 
when, when somebody is incarcerated, there's no information out there. There's nobody to tell you, oh, this is what you have to do. You can't see your loved one. You know, what, what do you have to do to fill out the papers? You have no right. So they don't even know what's happening to their, to their loved one that's incarcerated. I talk to a lot of mothers whose um, sons or daughters are incarcerated, and they're just freaking out because they don't know what's happening with their child, and they don't have access to what, what the process is or what they're doing. So going back around to what you were talking about, about wrongly incarcerated people, it not only affects the person on the inside, but it affects people on the outside. And when somebody is incarcerated, whether it be six days, six weeks, six months, six years, they're coming out and they're not the same person. So people on the outside also need to understand that when that person comes home, they could be suffering from PTSD. If they were on a long time, they don't know all the technology that's out here. And, and so there's a learning curve, too, and that's something that we're working on is to help the families and people on the outside deal with their loved one when they come out, whether, you know, because they're, they're just not the same person. I don't think a lot of people realize that. And there's certain things and certain ways that, that people need to be treated and assimilated back into society. And it's difficult, uh, Julia, because what you run into when you have a society, I, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine cause I was wrongfully convicted for seven years, uh, got out, um, there's some changes mentally you got to go through to try to recover, to try to get yourself back. Uh, what's critical, I thought, was extreme support system that is, which I had, uh, strong family support uh, that, that helped me through it and friends that helped me through it. And, uh, again, every person responds differently uh, when they get out. But I, I think you make a good point about the, the anguish of the family. We talked a couple of weeks ago about a gentleman that was wrongfully convicted, uh, ended up getting out. But his mother, once he went in, was so mentally uh, torn apart about her son being locked up. She believed him to be innocent. She killed herself. Um, that's unacceptable. And that's why the system has to be looked at. Uh, more. We got to look, wait a minute. Not, you basically just have attempted uh, ultimately destroying two lives there. And that's just what's Mm -hmm. talked about. It's not talked. What about the brother or the sister or the children? That's why our system needs a revamping. It has to have a revamping. And I think Julia, what you do uh, in regards to, you know, what's your blog that educates and brings to attention people if they don't know it, and like you just said, I, people don't have a clue of the suffering mm-hmm. involved here. And uh, for the work that you do in, in, in opening that form, of setting that platform, um, is awesome. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely awesome because, and we need more people like you that can say, look, where's reentry? As I said earlier, you know, when I was on, on the inside, again, wrongfully, they talked about reentry all the time. But they never did mm-hmm. anything. You know, they'll give you a printout. Hey, read this. Reentry. Go back to your cell and read it. That, that does nothing for me. And then you get out here, you treat it like, and I think what we talked about earlier, this is tragic. The innocent, the wrongfully convicted should have a red carpet, a parade, 
when they get out. We did it wrong. Let's correct it. Here's a check for a million dollars or however, you know, whatever compensation is due you. Uh, you'll never work again. There's your house. Here's the keys. Here's the car. Here's, the, here's your transportation. And this should be to the innocent that you have put away. And that, that just doesn't happen. Because society is not connected to the reality of wrongful convictions, of what you do to a person's life. And then on, on top of that, Julia, you have people that need mental health services. That the, the closing of mental institutions uh, in this country is at an alarming rate. They're shutting things down. There's no funding for it. So when people get out, when they can have counseling by doctors to say, look, let me help you. None of that. And this is to an innocent person who you snatched from society and threw in a cage. Yeah, Lamont, I'm just I hear you. I, I... Go ahead, Julia. Go ahead. Right. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I hear you. I've, I've, I've spoken to people that have been imprisoned and come out that were innocent. And it's the same thing. When you come out, if you don't have that family support, if you don't have that support around you, and they just say, here, whatever the check is, and drop you off somewhere – and then there's also people that, that do have family, and they tell them, oh, well, they're going to come out at this time. And I've had people waiting at this certain place on the curb somewhere, waiting for their loved one to get dropped off in this, this van, this unmarked van. And they're sitting there for five hours waiting, and a lot of times they let people out, like, in the middle of the night. And yeah. so it, it's, it's, just, it's just tragic um, when somebody comes out and goes and has reentry and doesn't have anybody, what do they do? And then the other thing, too, that a lot of people don't realize is that sometimes somebody's released and they go into a halfway house or they have to go somewhere and they have to pay. So how are they going to get that money to pay for this, this in-between place that they're, they're put in and, and can't find work or they have to pay restitution? So there's so many things that are unfair when somebody comes out and the way they're treated you know, we're talking about people that are innocent that come out. Anybody that was inside that comes out that has a, a record, and I'm doing quotes, you know, it's difficult for them to find a job. A lot of people don't want to hire them, and that's why it's so important that we raise awareness and talk about it. And that's why I'm out there talking about it to people that don't even know about incarceration and educating them because they need to know what it's like and that it's not somebody over there that it's happening right there in their community. I mean, one out of 12 people know somebody that's been incarcerated and they don't even know it because people don't talk about it. So what I'd like to see is people to be able to talk about it and help people like, like yourself, like other people that are coming out so that they can live fulfilling lives. That's no, one of my goals. No, absolutely. Samson, you had something. Oh uh, yeah. I apologize for jumping in. I'm just eager to get on top of this because like, like <laughs> you were alluding to and saying like, there is not enough, that we as a society could do for the wrongfully convicted. There's not enough because regardless of what happens, you know, like both of you have been saying, like their record is permanently marred regardless of how long, you know, they say, Oh, we're going to expunge it. A, is it really going to happen? B, if it does, how long is it going to take? Then there's the, the uh, societal stigma of, Oh my God, you went to jail. And all these assumptions are automatically made about, you know, their character, the reliability, everything. 
And, and not to mention, like like we've been talking about the last couple of shows, the collateral damage that's done to families. Sometimes it's permanent with a family member committing suicide. Sometimes it's just the detriment of not having that parent, that caregiver, that spouse, that friend there with them, you know. And so, you know, these are going to be lifelong scars that are going to be in in these families' lives. So, yes, I mean, there are, there are some things that are in place. I don't think they're managed well that can help the ones that are convicted but those that are wrongfully in prison, again, I mean, there, there's, there's no limit to what should be done for these people. Something, you know, I don't care if it's education, I don't care if it's transition, whatever they want to call it, you know, it, it, they need to get something out there to help these people to clean, to clean up their record and get them reintegrated into uh, a society that's, for all we know, become completely estranged to them. I mean, God only knows how long they've been behind the wall. So, I mean, societal well, norms could have changed drastically well they have i mean you're talking technology you know i was in prison with some folks that had eight tracks double cassette players that's how long they were locked up so you walk in their room and you're their cell you're like they've been down 40 years 50 years so when i walk in and see double cassette players cassette to cassette Fans that you will never, you don't even see. Uh, I'm, I'm blown. And, and they, you can tell by their number how long they've been there. And one of the guys I met in prison said, I've been here this long, and I did not commit the crime. And him going out to society, he might as well be on Mars. I mean, that, that's how drastic the change is. Uh, I'm going to play a clip right now, Julie. I want to get your thoughts on it. Um, teen mom was, that was wrongfully convicted, a teen mother. You take a teen mom from their baby and you've made a mistake? How do they function? How do they cope? How do they come back? Let's hear the clip. I was sentenced March 8, 1990, and my death date was July 2, 1990. I thought this was all a nightmare that it went in. But it wasn't a nightmare. At the age of 17, Sabrina Butler was sentenced to death after a jury convicted her of killing her own baby boy. Sabrina grew up poor in rural Columbus, Mississippi. My childhood was not great. I didn't have what normal children look. Time to play, um, Christmas toys, things like that. We were mostly uh, shuffled from one place to another. In 1989, um, I had my son, Walter Dean. He was a good baby. He never cried. He never fussed or left. He wanted a bottle or wanted to be changed. The day that would change Sabrina's life forever started as an ordinary one. I put him to sleep and went jogging. I jogged up to the end of the street, and when I got back to the house, I went in the apartment and went to the kitchen to get a bottle. And when I went in the room, he wasn't breathing. So I, didn't, I panicked. I didn't know, you know, what I should do, so I just grabbed him. That's the first thing I thought to do and run. Sabrina asked a neighbor to rush her and nine-month-old Walter Dean to the hospital. On the way there, she said she gave CPR to her son, desperately attempting to revive him. I was screaming when I ran into the emergency room, and they grabbed him from me and carried him to the back. 
And um, I had to stay in the waiting room. And I was waiting and waiting. And um, they came back out and they told me that they tried everything they could. Within 24 hours, Sabrina lost her son and was now being questioned by the police about his death. Before she knew it, she was charged with murder and behind bars. Her trial lasted one week. She was convicted and sentenced to death row. The first day I went to prison, they had me shackled from my ankles around my waist and my wrist. I was just scared. I was shaking. They carried me in this room and they took off all my, made me take off all my clothes. And then after you do that, you had to put on this jumpsuit. They just put me in a cell. And then they came back a few minutes later and took the orange jumpsuit and gave me the red. They'll let you know, everybody in the prison knows that you're on death row. I sat on death row two years and nine months in a cell no bigger than your bathroom for 23 hours a day. Two new attorneys entered Sabrina's life and began digging deeper into what they believed were major discrepancies in her case. Her case was appealed to the Mississippi Supreme Court. I got the call from my attorney that my case had been overturned in the Supreme Court, and I was happy. I was so happy that I wouldn't go back in my cell. I'm thinking that we're fixing to go back right back to trial, and they're going to bring out all the proofs and all the evidence that should have been brought out in the first trial, but that didn't happen like that. So, off death row, but still not free. My second trial was in 1995. Um, it also lasted five days. The biggest bombshell came from the medical examiner, who said that a rare kidney condition might have led to her nine-month-old son's death. So now, Sabrina stood before a new jury, and it took them less than an hour to reach a verdict. So when they said not guilty, I just lost my Well, there you have it. Uh, wow. Um, what a story. What a situation. But again, what a tragedy. Uh, something that could have easily been avoided. Um, Julia, your thoughts on that? Unimaginable. I mean, to have somebody that, that's another thing. People that are that young, that are incarcerated with adults, that they're not grown up yet. And I feel very strongly, and I've spoken to many people that feel that, that somebody that's under 21 should not be imprisoned with, with the adults. And just the horror of what she had to go through, I mean, losing a son and then being wrongly convicted. And, and just so you know, I've interviewed uh, somebody that was on death row, too, and mm-hmm. just what he had gone through. And it's just, just what the way they're treated and what they have to go through. And, and I just hope that she has support her family and support around her because she's going to need a lot of love and to get back. That is just so bad. And, you know, you're talking about things that we can do because people are wrongly convicted. And it starts with, you know, the, the whole system and how they go about getting information and how, the prosecutors are working with people and 
and I think they need to see people as people and not winning a case. I, I, I really think that they need to, that, that I think somebody had mentioned it and I know there's a group out there that I've interviewed that actually does training for prosecutors, but it's getting the prosecutors to, to be humane. And, and here's Julia, here's what you have the problem with that. I'm going to get you, uh, I want to get you a, a, and I know we're going to respect your time. I know you said you had about 30 minutes with us tonight, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this point. I want to make a, to what you just said in regards to, we hear a lot about training. Let's train these prosecutors. Let's train cops to do it the right way. Let's train these. These folks have heart conditions of not caring. You can roll the map and roll in training. And if somebody simply is, is, is a person that wants to just hate people and be meanful and spiteful, training is not going to change that. So then what do you have to do? You have to go find people who want to who work in law enforcement for the right reason. Not to ego trip or feel like I'm better or stronger or I have this power. Um, you understand what I'm saying? This is our, the mindset of human beings have to change. And society, and I say this yeah. all the time, I say this all the time, Julia, when you have a culture of behavior, that's like a steel wall. How do you change culture when people are just accustomed to this? culture of thinking, of acting, of behaving. That's difficult. And I think the only thing that breaks through that wall are people that are doing what you're doing, what a just cause is doing, what other organizations are doing to say, look, let's bring awareness to what's happening. Let's cause moms to be troubled about how their kids that may be locked up are being treated. Let, let, let's, let's have siblings crowd about how their brothers and sisters are being treated. Until we ignite that are we are we just idle in our in our press for justice? We have to let people know what's going on. I think you're doing a great job doing that, and uh, uh, we want to definitely uh, look more into, into your blog. We're going to definitely invite people to go out there and, and get involved in the conversations uh, and other ways that people can support your organization. Julia, how can they do that? Well, basically, anybody that has a story or anybody that needs information. They can go to our site. They can read about people that have similar circumstances so they know they're not alone, things that people have done to get through the system. And then also if they have questions, we have our Twitter and Facebook accounts, and we're always posting information for people, any information that we get on organizations, what's going on. We put it out there so that people can get the information that they need. And and really just be a part of the community and a part of the conversation because there's so many groups out there that are doing good things. And, you know, we need to be the change and it starts with us. So by having all of the groups support each other and by prison mission sentence and our, and our social media, our social presence, sharing information with people that they can get what they need. Because it's like you said, it's all going to come down to education and it starts with us to get the word out. And the more people know, the more that we'll be able to make this change. Oh, that's definitely so, Julia. Look, that's, that's my thoughts. No, no, no. And I, we appreciate that. And I want to give you an, an invitation to come back with us. Uh, I want to hear more about your organization. Uh, again, uh, time being an issue here tonight. But we want to definitely bring you back. The invitation is open to you. 
if we can do anything to uh, get the word out, uh, you always have a platform here at AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization. Please know that. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, anything that you guys are doing, and I've spoken to other people from the organization, you know, that we want to share to get the word out to people, we'll go ahead and post that too. So thank you so much for having me and, and doing what you do. Well, we appreciate that. And we'll definitely be in touch offline, okay? Okay, thank you. I'm going to sign off. Bye-bye, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you have it. Julia, uh, uh, she said uh, Lazarek, I believe she corrected me on that. And, uh, man, she's doing a lot out there. CEO, founder of Prison, uh, The Hidden Sentence, uh, and president of Friends and Family of Incarcerated Persons, uh, offering support groups, supporting families, the impact of reentry, uh, those are key things. On the other side of the break, we're coming back with Derek Gamble. He's going to be joining us about this discussion. Reentry, man, it's lacking a lot. Uh, and the mental anguish and the death numbers we're going to bring back, suicide rates of those getting out of, the, out of prison, uh, what we're having with that, the number of people who are in mental institutions who simply have been unable to cope with uh, the trauma of a wrongful incarceration. This is Voices from Behind the Wall, Voices of the Innocent. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. This is Julie. How may I help you? My husband and I just got in a fight, and he hit me. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. I wanted to be in the military since I was was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. 
Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills. Because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one, side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can have value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with, especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic 
of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Ladies and gentlemen of America, AJC Radio, coming back with you on Voices from Behind the Wall, addressing the voices of the innocent, the wrongfully convicted, the suffering, the anguish of a wrongful conviction. And I'll tell you what, it's not something to take lightly. And uh, this is something that has to be discussed, has to be talked about, uh, because as our previous guest stated, people really don't understand the mental horror of leaving the penitentiary into society after being put in a cage for whatever amount of time that you're there, being told when you can eat, when you can go to the bathroom, when you can get your clothes on, when do you take your clothes off, taking you to solitary confinement, uh, the abuse of guards, the abuse of other inmates, edged on by guards. Uh, This is someone who's been taken from a world of normalcy and put into a world of chaos. Uh, We talked uh, Tuesday night in regard to uh, Khalif Browder uh, being put in Rikers Island for three plus years, never being charged with the crime, never being convicted of wrong, was beaten by guards, was hogtied and beaten by inmates to the point when he got out and thought there was a chance of going back, he took his life. This is the anguish, ladies and gentlemen, of a wrongful conviction and what we call the voices of the innocent. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to sit back and just let this abuse, let the body bags continue to be filled up as people continue to die? People continue to feel like I'm institutionalized. They get out, they, they make plans to go back into the institution because they can't survive being free. What has society done at that point to strip these men and women, uh, juveniles, from every fiber of hope, of normalcy, till they cannot function anymore? That is a serious, serious issue. And if we call that rehabilitation in America, we are sadly deceived, mistaken, and very uh, very naive because that's not reality. And uh, right now we're going to we have the privilege of be jo- of, to be joined by our next guest, Derek Gamble, uh, and uh, he is Clean Slate Reentry Program Director. Uh, we're going to get his perspective on this. Uh, Derek, thanks for joining us. Are you with us? Good evening. Thank you. Thank, good evening, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far. Uh, really, a serious problem in this nation. 
uh, with what people are suffering out of com- uh, uh, when they are getting out of prison, out of incarceration, uh, and the mental shutdown, if you will, that is happening. And I don't think we have enough reentry programs. Uh, I, I spoke earlier that in prison, uh, the reentry uh, mention of reentry is a joke. Uh, it's a piece of paper that you put in a folder in your cell box, in, in, your, in your cell. That's it. There are no formal classes of how do we reenter, how do we deal, because the bottom line is our society simply does not care. I'll let you introduce yourself to our listeners and give you the floor to introduce what you do and how you, what, what can you add to this conversation. My name is Derek Gamble. I'm the executive director of Clean Slate Reentry Program in Suffolk, South Carolina. Uh, I am also a former offender uh, with the South Carolina Department of Corrections. That actually motivated me to get into reentry after serving 22 months in the Department of Corrections for, uh, unfortunately and laughingly, I have to say now, habitual traffic offender for driving multiple times without a driver's license. So that actually was what sent me to prison, and I actually... (laughs) So 22 months for actually being a habitual traffic attorney. Okay. But I actually, but but now as far as the reentry program is concerned, after my release from incarceration, I was able to uh, rehabilitate myself and actually get on my feet, uh, purchase some properties, and start some businesses. And one of the things that I always said I wanted to do was to start a reentry program. My vision initially was to get an old hotel or a nursing facility or either site build building and actually start reentry, but wasn't able to get to that level yet, but I have been able to open a group facility uh, where I house six gentlemen at a time, at a maximum, to actually give them up to 18 months to get back on their feet and actually teach them a battery of soft and hard skills to actually reenter society successfully. That's awesome. That's awesome, and thank you for what you're doing there, Derek. Uh, that, that's, that's big, uh, because a lot of people are not doing that. You know, a lot of people leave, uh, and you know what? Uh, I was in, you know, as I said earlier, wrongfully convicted. I did seven years in the state of Colorado uh, and was at six different penitent- institutions, rather. And I'll tell you what, uh, there was nothing pushed on reentry, nothing. So you're for right. you to, you're right. go, ahead. go ahead, Derek. I was about to say, you're, you're right, uh, I will give uh, the Department of Corrections in South Carolina a little bit more credit. They have actually turned one of their work release yards in Columbia, South Carolina, into a reentry yard where they allow former offenders and various organizations to come in, and actually they start them from six months from release to actually start teaching classes and getting them the things that they need. So it's starting to be somewhat of a slight change in South Carolina And that's good. And listen, make no mistake about it. If you're out there doing something, uh, if the Department of Corrections for some of these states are stepping up, we salute you. Uh, We just don't hear a lot about it. Uh, And I know here in the state of Colorado, that's what I can speak to. uh, It's a a downright shame, the lack of uh, reentry. And I remember being in one of the uh, uh, institutions here uh, and they were supposed to have a GED class, let guys get their GED. So when they get out, you know, they got that, at least that uh, when they get out. And the guy came back. He said, uh, he said, Lamont, uh, oh, the, the teacher comes in, says, take your seat, bring whatever book you want to read. And he takes a nap. 
during the entire time. Uh, there are no tests. I mean, there are no, uh, hey, we're going to study math today. What's in the GED? Reading and comprehension and all these things. Some of those folks, I told one guy, and he came to me, he said, but Mr. Banks, he said, I got to tell you. He said, you gave me something to read, man. He said, I can't read. This man was 56 years old. And he also was there on a habitual traffic, uh, but they gave him six years on habitual traffic violation. But my point I want to make with that, Derek, is that uh, for people to be doing what you're doing needs to be saluted, needs to be put out there. And maybe other organizations or other folks can say, you know what? Uh, Derek Gamble got out here and did something. And it's amazing to me the most people that are doing something are the people that went through the system and saw the lack of what was going to say, look, what can I do to help? And you were, you were one of the fortunate ones. You got out here and worked hard, you know, like you said, got involved with some businesses, and your, your vision was to, hey, what can I do to help? That's somebody that went to prison and got it. They understand, hey, I need to do something. So uh, I salute what you do. That's awesome stuff right there. Uh, How is that going, the success rate of that, there right now with, with the reentry? The reentry program, I can actually boast that uh, 77% of our residents that actually reenter are employed within the first 30 days because we have actually established a lot of second-chance employers in the Southern South Carolina area and surrounding areas. So when, when you're actually able to get them employment and you're actually able to get them some of the other services like peer support and conflict resolution and various other services that we offer and to be able to show them a ray of sunshine at the end of the tunnel with expungements, pardons, and actually help them with various forms of case plans to actually give them the solution to the many barriers that face them during reentry, it makes it a whole lot easier. But coming from the aspect of a former offender, a lot of times who better to teach a former offender, I mean to teach an offender, but somebody that has already offended and has been successful and been out for more than seven years. No, absolutely right. And let me ask you a question, Derek. We were talking about the mental torture, uh, and that's, that's putting it lightly from what we have come across during these series of shows of what people go through when they get out. They're like in, in space. They don't know how to function. They don't know how to deal. Uh, did you run into that with some of the folks that came to you that you had to feel like, hey, look, and I, I like the point that you make. You, you immediately get them placed. Hey, let's get you busy. Let's get you working. Let's, let's talk about giving you some purpose here. And that's about making that check, being able to say, you know what, I'm going to make that money. I'm going to get me a place. I'm gonna, at least I got into a routine to do something positive. When you first come in contact with some of these uh, offenders, getting out, I don't know how many uh, wrongfully convicted folks you may have come across that had to get in. Here's what's crazy. The wrongfully convicted, uh, we have to do something within our system because they're suffering worse to get jobs than inmates who are getting out that, that committed their crimes. How is it that the innocent are suffering worse to reenter than the guilty? Uh, well, with the wrongfully convicted, I would say this. I can only imagine the mental anguish of knowing that you didn't do something, and many times financial barriers are the reason that you got convicted in the first place. And so, you know, if a lot of times you have, if you have the right lawyer and you have the right this, that, or the other, a lot of times you can circumvent, even if you're guilty, a lot of times convictions that are put upon you or even charges. So a person that's wrongfully convicted and actually have to still get out and actually deal with 
trying to rebuild their lives, I can only imagine. I have actually worked with some people. The, the most, uh, the longest stint of time that I've actually dealt with an offender is a gentleman that was locked up three months before I was born. I'm uh, 37, about to be 38 years old. The gentleman was uh, locked up for 37 years and just slightly three months longer before I was born in 1980. So that was a very tough transition for him because a lot of things have changed in 1980. We didn't have cell phones and a lot of the technology that they have now. And so actually having to teach this gentleman how to actually function in a time where we transitioned from the industrial age to the information age, it was uh, a, a really large learning curve to actually mm-hmm. teach him and bring him up to speed. So I've actually seen some very horrific cases. And during mm-hmm. my incarceration, I can honestly say that I have done 12 months on SMU and segregation due to a charge that I caught during the course of my incarceration. So being locked up without human contact, really, for 365 days besides showers, uh, running in and out of the dog kettles that they call uh, a record area and getting uh, shaves, that was quite a bit of mental anguish for me. And if I did not have a very strong mind and a will to live and survive, I would have been like some of the rest of the guys that might have tied my sheet onto the sprinkler system and rolled off the side of the bed or something. So it is. it takes a very strong mind to actually – endure some of the different things that we go through when we're incarcerated at different levels. Awesome, man. Derek, we're going to take a quick break. You got a few minutes to come back with us? Yes, sir. Okay, I mean, I want to get more stories of what you're talking about. That's, that's big time. And as he said, somebody locked up in the 1980s early, you're not going to recognize Earth. After get, so he got out after 38 years? Derek? July of July of uh, 1980 until April of 2018. Wow. Yeah. How is he? Are you, do you, are you still in contact with him? I am. We have been able to help him get transitional housing uh, awesome. further than the reentry program. He's actually in senior living. He has actually he went in when he was 28 years old, and he actually got out when he was 65 years. Okay. Went in, a young man came out a senior citizen. Uh, unbelievable. Um, I'm going to hit, I'm going to talk to you on the other side of the break, Derek. This is definitely informative. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. Feel free to dial in to 646-200-0628. And we're going to be uh, 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 coming back with Derek Gamble, giving some insights, some perspective, if you will, as he sets out to make a difference, an impact on folks getting out of prison and dealing in some cases with the wrongfully convicted trying to somehow put the puzzle and the pieces back together this system truly has fallen off the rails but what Derek Gamble is doing is making an impact and making a difference Uh, we're going to hear from him on the other side of the break this is AJC radio voices from behind the wall the voices of the innocent the anguish of the wrongfully convicted we'll be right back Now it's time. 
time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders facing trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen 
to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty, and we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off from school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for them to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Tonight, we continue the discussion, Voices from Behind the Wall, the Voices of the Innocent. And Samson, as we get into this, man, every single show seems uh, something horrifically new. And that's sad because the stories get worse and worse of what we're hearing, what people are suffering. Your thoughts, and, and Derek Gamble, who's with us tonight, I'm telling you, uh, is refreshing yeah, to absolutely. hear that somebody is out here not talking a bunch of talk, but is involved in doing something and uh, had an opportunity to take a look at uh, Eric on YouTube, a little report out there, what he's doing. Awesome stuff. Uh, and we bring Derek Gamble back in. And Derek, thanks for joining us. Sampson's, Sampson's uh, comments about what we've heard so far from Derek and, and how important is it that we have people like Derek? Uh, an organization saying we are going to do something and not just talk about it. How important is that? Oh, it's critically important. Like we've talked about here week after week. I mean, like you said, we keep we continue to pull the string on this stuff and find out worse and worse stuff. But to have somebody come in that's been there, use that knowledge of the system, use that knowledge of what they had to go through in their transition to establish an organization, reach out to those people that are saying, yep. hey, and say, hey, look, here I am. I'm I'm an I'm an oasis. I'm a, I'm a resource. I'm I'm here for you. And give them easy, he said, like eighteen months for six individuals to help them, get, you know, get awesome. up on their feet and get them yep. going. Absolutely, I mean, I, I my highest commendations to you, sir. Absolutely, you know, for what you're doing. And God, I wish we had, you know, hundreds more like him. Absolutely, absolutely right. And Derek, again, thanks for coming back on with us. 
uh, as we get through this yes, conversation. Sir. We appreciate that. Listen to this really quickly. And we talked about the impact uh, of being wrongfully convicted. And, and hear this story. Beth, Le, it's called Beth Labatt, 30 years old, was convicted in December of 1997 of robbing and murdering two elderly sisters. Despite overwhelming pretrial publicity that, that vilified her, Labatt steadfastly maintained her innocence. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole eligibility until she was 85 years old in one case and 90 in another, reflecting the ages of the sisters who had been killed. Three jailhouse snitches testified that Labatt had confessed to the murders. The University of Wisconsin Law School's Innocence Project helped Labatt challenge her convictions on the basis of new DNA evidence. Her conviction was reversed in 2005, but prosecutors proceeded to retry her. Her friends and family put up real estate to cover her bond, and just weeks before the trial was to begin, the charges were dismissed. This will always be over my head, said an emotional Labatt. It won't be over until whoever murdered these women are caught. Labatt's freedom was short-lived around 20 months after her release. In September of 2007, she died after losing control of the pickup truck she was driving. She had a blood, blood alcohol level of .021. She had been drinking. Uh, she grumbled at other people, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, but she did it herself, said Labette's mother. I think it was, it was catch-up for her time in prison. She didn't have that kind of willpower, and there were still people who remembered the murder case and didn't let her forget it. Now, the reason I read that and the reason I state that to our listeners out there tonight and to the folks tuned in, this is the collateral damage of wrongful convictions. She said she couldn't, people never let her forget what happened, even being uh, exonerated. Even being exonerated. And who knows, had she not went through this ordeal that mentally stripped her of everything? Who says she's behind that pickup that day with alcohol? Absolutely. Or was the contributing factor was she was stripped of everything, so she turned to alcohol to try to help cope with the years she spent in prison. This is what we're talking about. So it's just not as simple as saying, well, she just killed herself. Prison had nothing to do with it. Or she, you know, died as a result of overdrinking or doing these things. Prison absolutely had something to do with it. Absolutely. I mean, when you get put into, you know, like we, we've talked about, when you get put into a traumatic situation like that, and then you, have, you, you adjust to that kind of lifestyle. You adjust to, you know, the cruelty and everything else like that, and then getting released into normal so-called society, it's a, it's a huge, a huge break and a huge mental adjustment. And, and one thing I want to point out, Derek, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this, uh, on not only what I just said, but a lot of people that have been wrongfully convicted who never were involved in the criminal activity, in the criminal lifestyle, turn to that because of the rejection they're getting when they get out and they're unable to cope, they're unable to get jobs. They're un- the wrongfully convicted suffer that. So when they turn, well, man, they never did drugs or they never sold drugs or they never turned to that. What pushed these people to that? Do we just say, well, it's their fault? No, there's accountability to pass on everywhere. Derek, your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, I can just say, can that, just say that, unfortunately, unfortunately we have a criminal justice system that is actually more concerned with hands of one, hands of all, and basically blanket conviction. So many times that somebody, there are a lot of people that turn on other individuals to try and lessen what they have going on and then actually cause them to actually catch the charge or 
take the charge for someone else. As far as on the opposite end of them getting out, I actually advocate heavily for peer support. I'm actually a peer support specialist that actually uses my lived experience to actually help those that are actually going through the transitions of coming out of institutionalization to actually normalize themselves and actually get stabilized back to society. But if you don't have these different support systems that are available to you, it can actually turn to be very tragic in the nature of how things actually come, you know, come to uh, a head. So it, it is it's quite a bit if you're actually wrongfully convicted and actually having to go through this stuff, or even if you did do the crime and actually are feeling the pressures and the trials and tribulations that come after a conviction. And oh, absolutely. absolutely right. And that's something that's, Serious. And, and Derek, I want to uh, make a note. It says here, Clean Slate Reentry Programs uh, plans to expand its services to include formerly incarcerated veterans, homeless veterans, the combat veterans for the first quarter of 2019. Um, uh, many of, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, actually, what we have going on now is we have an expansion uh, fundraiser to actually finish opening a second facility that will give beds to people that have former military experience and so forth and so on. A lot of times the same issues that occur in wrongfully convicted people, uh, rightfully convicted people, the post-traumatic stress and everything is similar with people that are in the military as people who have done time or solitary confinement. There are a lot of parallels with that going on. And, you know, a lot of times we have to, take the time, and if my dad is a former, you know, veteran of the Air Force, my uncle's Army, and I, you know, I grew up in a household where military was a big thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, to actually give honor and homage to people who have once tried to sacrifice it all in protection of this country, that's what the second facility will be focusing on, people that are actually prior military, because we have a large population of homeless veterans, and a lot of times that leads to incarceration or either the experience that they had while they were actively serving. So we actually have an online uh, fundraiser on Facebook since we are recognized 501c3. We're doing a fundraiser to gain the money to renovate a second home as well as a raffle and a couple of other fundraisers to go ahead and cover the cost of getting a second home that could hold another six individuals up and running. We're trying to do that in order to establish a track record where hopefully we could get a large federal grant and procure a larger building or facility to help more people at a time instead of so many different smaller facilities. Derek, that's awesome, man. I'll tell you right now, uh, this is about walking the walk and not just talking the talk. This is, this is amazing. I salute you for your efforts and what you're doing. That's big-time stuff. Uh, we're going to bring into the conversation right now, Derek, joining us in this conversation, Kathy Morris. Uh, uh, she might as well consider herself family here. Uh, she's been on our show, has contributed a lot of information, a lot of perspective on the wrongful convicted, as she has, uh, was on the show Tuesday night in regards talking about the innocent uh, and the anguish that is, is there. Um, but we want to definitely talk more, Derek, about uh, the projects you're doing down there in South Carolina. We'll get more to that. Uh, I'm going to get Kathy on this conversation, and we're going to probably wrap up this last segment. Kathy, are you with us? I am here. Good evening. Um, Mm -hmm. And I 
yeah, I just think that that's a great program that he's running, Clean Slate. Um, I wish there were more of him. I wish we could clone him and put him in every state because it's just such, there's such a need for reentry services and housing services and supportive services like that. Yeah, and, and look, uh, Derek, can we clone you? Is that possible? <laughs> Hey, we can we can match the franchise the five hundred one and expand it across the state. I mean the country. That would hey, be hey. that would be possible. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think people need to adopt it. I, I want to make this point to what you're doing, Derek, and to Kathy's point. Uh, I think when people get out and you don't have a Derek situation with a heart to do something, this is where hope is lost. Because when you get out and there's nothing there, what do you do? And we talk a lot about support, 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 which is critically important for people getting out. Uh, and again, focusing right now on the innocent, their anguish is more. As Derek alluded to earlier, you can only imagine their anguish from being, and I, 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 can't, I, I uh, gave this illus- illustration of it, of being sitting in your house with your family one evening. Somebody comes in and snatches you away, takes you and puts you in a cage for seven years or for two years. Or for, two, or for for a month, months, whatever it is, and then they throw you back in and say, go back and be, act normal. It's over now. You know how insane that is? That's not going to – normalcy has gone at that point. And uh, the seriousness of that is there are people that take their lives because they can't cope, and there's no strong reentry out there. Derek is one person in South Carolina. How do we get other states to adopt that mindset? Uh, to adopt what Kathy Morse is doing, to be a voice for the voiceless and say, look, my voice needs to be heard. How do we get more uh, uh, penetration uh, from what a Just Cause is doing, AJC Radio is doing? How do you get other people hungry to make a difference, hungry to make a change? That's what I see with Derek, his organization, because he's doing something. He's not just talking about it. Kathy's doing something. She's not just talking about it. These are folks out here saying, let's get involved. Let's do something to help people, and if we can spread that message, and that's what we need to do, uh, that to the, those that come out of prison who feel like all hope is lost, and you're walking in a, in a zombie state of mind for what a criminal justice system did to you, that we got to offer hope. Where is that hope? Uh, we find it here with these two individuals tonight who are joining our show. Kathy, we talked earlier Tuesday about the – we were going to talk about the mental anguish uh, horror, if you will, the terror of mental anguish that causes a person simply to shut down and they can't recover. They can't come back. They can't seem to. Right. How do we address those issues? And did you see they a lot don't, of they, it, Yes. Yes, sir. I, it, and it's the trauma. And it's the lack of having that support and that safety net out in, out in the community. And there are some individuals who will actually go out and, and I saw this when I was in, in Rikers, break the law on some minor crime, say uh, fair jumping, just so that they come back because Rikers is the only home that they know. And we call that. And to me, to me, that is so sad. Um, And, you know, one of the critical issues about reentry is reentry has to start the minute someone walks in the doors at a facility, not two, two weeks or, you know, two hours before they're discharged. 
It has to start immediately, you know, and if we are serious in our desire to reduce the rates of recidivism, it is incumbent upon us to provide individuals with the reentry services they need to build and to give them that solid foundation upon which they can build a successful future when they return to the community. With the wrong, wrongfully convicted, it's even harder because they've got they've got such baggage with them. They've got such you know such ang- anger, and their main thing is is okay. I've been released, but now I need to get my reputation back. I need you know to clear my name. I need people to know that hey. I didn't do this. Even though, you know, the judge let me go, I'm still tainted. Yes. And yes. for them, there's, the, you know, there's, there's that, you know, that trauma of saying to people, but, hey, I didn't do anything. But, you know, and people are like, yeah, well, but why would they put you in there for, you know, 10 years or 15 years if you didn't do anything, you know, um, and it's just because people have that, that, that mindset block and they can't get behind, you know, bond behind, beyond that, that, you know what, they are innocent, you know, and just because, you know, the, the judges said they are, they just can't, it's, it's, it's kind of like they just can't get rid of that. And even, you know, they say people say, well, you, you need to sue and you need to go after all of them. No money in the world can get back that time that they lost. That's true. That's that's absolutely true. Uh, A retrospective uh, cohort study of all inmates released from the Washington State Department of Corrections from July 1999 through December 2003, of 30,237 released inmates, 443 died during a mean follow-up period of 1.9 years. The overall mortality rate was 777 deaths per 100,000 person uh, resident. During the first two weeks after release, the risk of death among former inmates was 12.7 times that among other state residents, with a marked elevated relative risk of death from drug overdose. The leading cause of death among former inmates were drug overdose, cardiovascular disease, homicide, and suicide. That's staggering. So people are dying at alarming rates. And that's, again, that's Washington State. Add the other 50 states into that. How many lives have been lost as a result? And those numbers include the wrongfully convicted. Yes, they do. And what you just stated, Kathy, Derek, I'm going to get your thoughts on what Kathy just said. What, What you just stated. The feeling, the, all the emotions involved with the wrongfully convicted, the innocent. I didn't do this. You took my life from me. God help if you buried somebody that died while you were incarcerated. Say you lost your mom, your dad, you lost siblings, you lost friends. How do you, how do you hold all of that emotion and expect to be normal without the proper channels uh, to give them hope again? Derek, your thoughts on that and what Kathy said. Uh, to actually give them hope again is is kind of a ooh, it's just a mountain 
to actually try and get yourself back on the right path if you are experiencing that type of anger and actual trauma from actually being wrongfully convicted and actually having to try and get your life pulled back together. But like I told you before, I try and push uh, avenues of trying to use expungements, pardons, and various other legal remedies to at least start to offset some of the different collateral damages that, you know, are actually fruit of incarceration for stints of time. You just have to actually try and reach out to your local innocent projects and actually get with different grassroots organizations and movements that would actually try and hear that voice verbally crying out in the wilderness saying that I was wrongfully convicted or, you know, I have served my time and I need an opportunity to actually be a productive citizen because regardless of conviction, rightfully or wrongfully, these people are still citizens. They're people's uh, children. They're somebody's father, uncle, or whatever their status may be in society. They're still human beings. And once you've served your time, you should not furtherly be punished over and over again for that same crime when you have actually done the time and actually have, you know, went through all the legal remedies that would actually have taken you to the end of your sentence. So that's kind of how I feel about it. No, absolutely right. And and those are just uh, the facts. Samson, your thoughts on those numbers and what Derek and Kathy, Derek and Kathy added to that. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, the, the numbers, I mean, they speak of a growing trend. I mean, and it's a travesty that we see of more and more people are dying because I mean, they, they get released either, either wrongfully convicted or rightfully. So whatever, but there's no hope for them. Like we've talked about in previous shows, there's no hope. There's no transitional period. Like they feel like they have no other options. So it's either go back to basically, you know, a life of, of crime or, they just go and they end it all and organizations, you know, um, like uh, Derek's and everything like that. Um, they are, they're a beacon of hope out there and they need it. We need, again, like we've said, we need more organizations like, and we need more people pushing. Like I was reading an article here about the, the state of Pennsylvania. They're actually pushing for a clean slate law. That's going to, that's going to be passed or they're looking to, to pass it and re- reduce the recidivism in that state. Now that's just one state. You know, like we said, you know, about how there's all these wrongful deaths that are just stacking up. Like you said, they're stacking body bags because of these people not having options, these people going yep. from one environment to another. Yep. And, uh, th- those are issues that have to be looked at. Um, it's one of those things that we cannot ignore. Uh, our society is, in my opinion, moving too slow on this issue. Oh, absolutely. You're too slow with it. And if I go out and, and hurt an innocent person, uh, I'm going to be railroaded and locked up and, and, and yelled at and scream. How could you do that to somebody? They weren't even doing anything, and you hurt them or you physically assaulted them. Mm-hmm. But you're doing the same thing. Yeah, it's using the other foot. It's just the same. We, we as a society get outraged if, if I'm on the street. and we, we say it. We'll see video of cops that are, you know, if they're assaulting elderly people for no reason, and they're just beating them up. You're like, what are they doing? And they're outraged, and we say, that's wrong. Can somebody tell me the difference? Locking up an innocent person and abusing them behind the wall? What is less tragic than that? But we're outraged about the other. Kathy, your thoughts? I'm outraged that anybody gets abused, whether they're 
you know, guilty or innocent and they're behind bars. I just think that everybody is a human being and, and deserves to be treated with humanity and compassion. And that's severely lacking. Um, but there are some men that I do know of in New York state who were wrongfully convicted and they fought their cases. And after many years, they, uh, their convictions were overturned and one is actually been admitted to the bar and the other one is going to law school. And what they're doing is they are fighting for the wrongfully convicted. They are taking their, um, experience as a wrongfully convicted individual and putting it to good use and fighting for others. And that's that's what we need. That's awesome. That's exactly what we need. No, absolutely. I'm going to play a clip real quick. We'll get your closing thoughts as we close out this show. Derek and Kathy, uh, we are thrilled that you're here tonight and your perspective to our listeners has shined a lot of light on, on what's happening, what people are doing, what do we need to do? Uh, that's awesome. It, it's, it's a big deal. Let's hit the clip. We're going to get the thoughts. Let's play it. According to the Innocence Project, we have nearly 120,000 people behind bars in the United States for crimes that they did not commit. Now, this is an estimate that the Innocence Project, ha- pro- uh, project has put out there, but uh, it isn't so far-fetched when you think about the way our justice system works. Now, there are two issues with our justice system right now as it stands. First of all, uh, prosecutors and cops and authorities can lie to people while they are interrogating them or investigating them in order to get confessions. And oftentimes, it will lead to a confession to a crime that the person actually didn't commit at all. In fact, uh, a 1969 Supreme Court ruling made it legal for cops to lie to suspects in pursuit of confessions. So, for instance, let's say you have two suspects, right? You'll separate them, and uh, one of the cops will basically tell one of the individuals that's being investigated, hey, your friend said that you committed the crime. Is it true? And then it'll basically snowball into the person either confessing to something they didn't do or alleging that their friend did something that they didn't do. The second problem is that there's a tremendous amount of pressure to take plea deals. In fact, um, if you really think about the number of federal cases, the vast majority of them end in plea deals. Now, first of all, let's talk about the number of exonerations, okay? Of the 321 DNA exonerations that have occurred in the United States, 30 have involved people who originally pled guilty to crimes they didn't commit. So this isn't like an isolated case here and there. This happens often. And also, according to the Innocence Project, estimates between 2.3% and 5% of all U.S. prisoners are innocent. The American prison population numbers about 2.4 million. Using those numbers, as many as 120,000 innocent people could currently be in prison. Well, there you have it. The numbers are clear. I'm trying to figure out one thing here. How are people in prison and are released because DNA proved their innocence? What are you doing in prison in the first place? And who failed to do their job and locked you up? And DNA, that somebody dropped the ball there. How does a DNA person get out when that should have been checked from the beginning? Is, Cliff, if DNA, 
if DNA clears you, and that's why we talked about some of the guys on death row. The guy made the statement while they were getting ready to put him to death with lethal injection. Would you please check the DNA? I told you, if you just check the DNA, and can you tell me what judge denies a request by a defendant? A guilty defendant is not going to ask you, in most cases, to check the DNA. And that is, I mean, checking DNA and making sure you have the right person in custody, that should be the first thing that a prosecutor does. And the only reason a prosecutor would not go for, okay, give me the results of the DNA, if they know that the person they have in custody did not commit the crime. So judges should require, no, if there is DNA in question, if it is available, check it if it can exonerate this person. And how does a judge allow a man to be executed? And see, the judge will say, well, it's up to the governor. He was convicted. You know there's DNA on the table that needs to be checked, and you don't allow it. That When it comes back to say, oh, this is a, a posthumous exoneration, the judge needs to be brought up on charges. The prosecutor right. needs to be brought up on charges because somebody needs to be held accountable oh. for the fact that uh, innocent life was taken by the system. And why? Because no one thought it valuable enough to get a result on the DNA sample. Derek, your thoughts on that? It is pretty. It is pretty sad, as uh, the brother just said, that somebody would actually not take the time to do their due diligence first, and actually doing DNA above and beyond anything else. Uh, I think that it may be possible that the prosecutor may want to keep a high conviction rate, or may right. not just want to take a L for not having the person they need to have. What they would probably do if they let that person go, then uh, basically the trail goes cold, and now it looks like they dropped the ball. So many times, uh, many people are held in hostage situations due to the ego and the percentage of conviction record of the prosecutor and the judge that are actually over the cases, in my point of view. No, I I agree with that. And really quick, Kathy, we're up against the wall. Your thoughts on that? Um, my biggest fear, you know, is the death penalty and the execution of innocent individuals, even if there is DNA evidence. No, absolutely. And we see that, we see that all the time. Um, we see police hiding evidence. There is a detective in New York City who has got a very high conviction rate they now have a special unit within the DA's office, and they are overturning those convictions. Wow. Well, what we're going to do uh, next week on this show, we're going to visit some of the voices of those on death row. We're going to address that next week as we continue Voices from Behind the Wall. How many cases are out there that people died on death row, and it was found out after the government killed them? We're going to visit that next week. Derek, Kathy, thanks for joining us tonight. I wish we, we could just keep this show Thank going you. all night because the conversation is not going to go away. You guys are welcome again, Kathy. Derek, you're welcome. Hey, we salute both of you for your efforts uh, to bring justice and to help those whose voices have been silenced. We appreciate your efforts, and we definitely will be in touch offline as we work together to make a difference in this nation. We appreciate it so much. You guys have a good, good night. night, everyone. Okay, good night. take care. Good night. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. 
AJC Radio at Yes Calls continues. Voices from behind the wall next week on this program. We'll see you then. We'll, we'll see you then. Have a good evening and very special thanks to our guests. Uh, the stories get thicker, they get bigger, and they're more horrific every time we turn the page. We continue that on the other side of this uh, show. Next week, we'll see you then. Until next time, America, good night. It's known as the most sensational murder case in the history of Arizona. In 1975, Bill McCumber was sentenced to two life sentences for killing two people and dumping their bodies in the desert. Well, for nearly 40 years, he maintained his innocence, saying his ex-wife framed him for the murders. And finally, four months ago, with the help of the Arizona Justice Project, McCumber was finally exonerated and released from prison. ABC 15, Stephanie Hawkins joins us now, sat down with McCumber to talk mm-hmm. about his life and what it's been like since he's been released. And it's hard to believe he, he has missed so much. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 40 years, you name it, weddings, uh, births of grandchildren. He definitely missed it. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, think about this. What's really interesting is how much our society has changed in four decades. Bill McCumber said it was kind of like Rip Van Winkle waking up 40 years later to find a world that he barely even recognized. Even though you watch television and you see all the changes, the changes don't impact like they do when you walk down the street. Uh, I don't know one car from another. I don't really care. I am totally awed by the technology. I'm awed by the size of the Walmarts and the Targets and the stores. I'm not comfortable with the dress of our youth. Uh, They're sloppy. I'm not sure it should be allowed now because... To me, it delves into self-pride. Well, he says he's been told he has to accept these things, but he decided, no, I really don't have to accept anything I don't want to.